listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, August the 12th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and on Mondays we examine readings for the following Sunday. This week we're actually going to do two of the readings. On Wednesday, we're going to continue with Hebrews chapter 11 for our Wednesday Bible study, and that's all about faith. So today, I decided we're going to be taking a look at a passage that really surprises a lot of people. Why are they surprised by Luke chapter 12? If you talk about Jesus and people say, yeah, we really need to follow his example. He was very kind. He hardly ever got angry with anybody. Uh, This is the kind of attitude that we should have towards others. And then you read Luke chapter 12, particularly beginning with verses 49 to 59. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. Jesus doesn't fool around. Verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. What is he talking about? Well, what is this fire? I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, it doesn't take much of a scholar to realize he's talking about his crucifixion. And if you want to see the level of his distress, just read the passages that occur in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he knows he's soon going to be arrested, uh, taken before the high priest, and then Pontius Pilate saying he should be crucified. That's the baptism he has. So verse 51 is not really a different subject, but it sounds strange from the mouths of Jesus, from the mouth of Jesus. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Well, that's what I thought, because is that not what the angel said to the shepherds? Peace on earth? And after his resurrection, doesn't he say peace to his disciples? Is this a contradiction of the Bible? Do you think that Jesus is wrong? And by the way, anytime I say that, you almost always have to answer no. Because he's never wrong. As we've said a number of times on this program, Law and Gospel... The same word in the Greek can have different meanings. For example, law. Sometimes it can refer to the Ten Commandments, sometimes to the ceremonial laws, sometimes to the civil law, sometimes principles of life. Uh, it, It just all depends on the context. So when he says that I have to come peace on earth, he says, no, I tell you, but rather division. Now, how do you reconcile that statement with the words of the angels to the shepherd and, of course, Jesus' own words to his disciples the night of the resurrection? Because the word peace 
can have different understanding. Theology is the art of making distinctions, and, and the way that we come to realize the distinction that's helpful here is this distinction between the temporal realm and the spiritual realm, or the political realm and the church. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? In the context, what Jesus is talking about is not the peace that comes about by his crucifixion and resurrection, where God, the Father, is now at peace with you. He's no longer holding you responsible for your sins. Your forgiveness means you're not held accountable because Jesus took upon himself that punishment for sin. Then what are we talking about this peace on earth that Jesus has not come to bring? It's the temporal peace. Jesus himself says, till the last day you're going to have war, rumors of war, and look at uh, terrible fighting, terrible weather at times. This is the peace that he has not come to bring. We will be going to a world of peace after Judgment Day. It's called heaven. But here on earth, that was not the purpose of why Jesus came. And boy, did a lot of people get that confused. Jesus fed 5,000 plus people. And what did the crowds think? Well, here's the Messiah who's going to get rid of the Romans and reinstall Jerusalem and Israel back to its former status as it was under Solomon. No. My kingdom is not of this world. So what world is this kingdom not of? The temporal realm. And listen what he says, that he is not going to bring peace on earth, but rather division. I mean, how many people think about that? If you're asked the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Well, it was to cause division. <laughs> Nobody would agree with that until you read Luke 12. Verse 52. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. Well, what's he talking about? In one house, and that really refers to a family, you may have five people, and three are going to be against two and two against three. In what area? What, what car to buy? What house to buy? What job to take? No. Listen to this, verse 53. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What is Jesus talking about? What division is he speaking of? He's speaking of the division in the religious sense. And any pastor can tell you that in a family, they will find believers and unbelievers in the same family. When I was at the seminary, 
uh, before the big walkout, there were a number of seminary professors who were sons of other professors, but they did not think like their fathers thought at all. They did not believe the Bible. They would uh, talk about evolution rather than creation, which their fathers taught. They would talk about, well, there really isn't a demonic state. They would go against readings of the Bible where Jesus walked on the water or where he fed 5,000, and they would have rationalistic understandings of it so it was not really miraculous. And yet they were sons of other professors who were well-respected in the church. That's why we had the Great Division in the 70s, and that group became Seminex, and now it became ELCA, E-L-C-A. I don't know if you heard about the recent E-L-C-A convention, but Issues Etc. was talking about it. I, I was unaware of this, but they had a resolution, the E-L-C-A convention, that they would now be in fellowship not only with other Christians, but other religions like Hinduism, Muslim, etc. And they would worship with them and they would consider them brothers in the faith. Well, some layman got up at the convention and said, we cannot do that because Jesus says no one can come to the Father except through me. Not only was that person voted down, but he was reprimanded, uh, according to issues, etc., for saying something like this. This is how far the ELCA congregational doctrine has gone. I'm not saying everybody in the ELCA agrees with that, because there are Christians in the ELCA, but the official position now of the ELCA is contrary to God. It's as simple as that. And, and therefore, there's division. In a family, some are going to agree with the position of the ELCA, and others are not. Jesus continues. He says to the crowds, When you see a cloud arising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. Then Jesus says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, what's Jesus referring to there? He's again making the distinction between the temporal realm where weather forecasters can be somewhat accurate in saying how much snow or rain is coming or a hurricane or whatever like that. And I'm always surprised uh, when they get it right because it's not that way when you look outside. It's nice and sunny. But sure enough, within a day or two, as they forecast, it begins raining. So... We can understand weather forecasters, but how many people can understand that the kingdom of God is among us? That's how Jesus 
starts off his ministry, of course. He's talking about the kingdom of God is among you. And what's he talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus is a new kingdom of God. Yes, he is from the family of a carpenter, but it is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you look at the first chapter of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then immediately he quotes Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And guess who's talked about next? John the baptizer. Because he is making paths straight to the Lord as people recognize their sinners, repent of their sin, and need to trust in a Savior that Jesus becomes and is. So that's what he's talking about when he says here that he's got a baptism to be baptized with. But even when he goes through that baptism, there's going to be division. And he's talking personally in his own family. There were occasions when his mother, brothers, etc., they did not like what he was saying. And one time he said, who are my brothers and sisters and my mother? Those who listen to my word. So he's making the point, we can take a look at the world and figure out maybe weather patterns, but we can't figure out spiritual patterns. So he goes on in verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So what we have here is a very interesting statement by Jesus that many in the world do not understand how he could say something like this, that there would be great divisions within the family. And the reason there are great divisions in the family is because of the work of the devil. The devil has the ability to create temptation. Anytime you question God, that's a temptation from the devil. In the Heidelberg Disputation, there's mainly three sections. The first one, the main section, many principles here, that works can't save anybody. The second section talks about the will of man is unable, as an unbeliever, to choose to believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that is because you have been given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can conjure up by a decision that you make in your mind. But the third section, and we were going over that in the Bible study this past week at two churches, is the great divide. What is the great divide? 
It's the divide between what Martin Luther refers to as the theologian of glory, I like to say the theologian of self-glory, and the theologian of the cross. What a difference between the two of them. In regard to works, the theologian of self-glory thinks he does enough works in order to merit his way into heaven. The best example of that is that parable Jesus gives of the Pharisee who thanks God he's not like that terrible sinner over there. And instead, the sinner who repents goes to heaven. The Pharisee does not. There's a good example of self-glory. The self-glory theologian, and all of us have both parts of that, our old Adam is always self-glory. That is, whatever we do, we do out of self-interest. There are people who attend worship at various places because they think that by doing that, they are pleasing God to the point where they merit their way to salvation. And it doesn't matter where they're worshiping, in what religion or whatever. That's unfortunate. Because nobody can come to Jesus to come to God the Father except through Jesus. The theologian of the cross looks at things totally differently. One of the big questions that we hear a lot uh, from people, and when I drive for Uber, you get this from the back seat of passengers I'm taking. Why does God allow? all this suffering to occur in the world. Anybody who tries to answer that is a theologian of self-glory because we love to be able to have answers where God has provided none. So it's speculation on our part why God does what he does. In fact, I asked the question in a Bible study yesterday And it was interesting to hear the answers. I said, why did God the Father have Jesus die on the cross as a way of our salvation? And people began to answer, well, because that way we get our sins forgiven. Uh, Another answer was, well, God knows that we are lost apart from salvation, so he decided to send his son. And as I kept hearing these answers, I kept coming back with questions. I said, okay, if he felt this way about human beings in order to save them, why didn't he also feel this way about demons, fallen angels? Why doesn't he have a way of salvation for them? And, of course, there was no answer. And then I said, well, why didn't God choose a different way than having his son die on the cross? I often thought when I was a kid, why didn't God just say, whoever thinks of me and then claps his hands three times will be saved? Just the clapping of your hands together three times would save you. Why didn't God do that? We really don't have an answer as to why he chose to save us by putting his son on the cross, especially when he could have many other ways of salvation, because he's God. 
He can choose whatever he wants. A Roman Catholic priest put together a uh, book about seven other ways in which God could have brought salvation to human beings. And he wrote them down. After he was done, he examined all seven, and he came up with a conclusion that God had chosen the best way because all the others may not have worked, but this way, namely sending his son to the cross, did work. Well, yes, God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. But why can't you say God loved the world that he therefore made a rule that whoever obeys him three times in a day is saved. Why, why did God choose the way that we are saved by the death of his only begotten son? There really is no answer to that. And, and so when people attempt to figure out why God does what he does, that's really a temptation from Satan himself. And we need to be aware of that. God does not think rationally the way we do. That's why every other religion in the world, their view of God is really a caricature of their own views about themselves. How many times have you heard, well, that was not very fair of God to do what he did? It might be the death of a loved one. It might be you didn't get a job you thought you were going to get. It might be that your house burned down. It might have, It could be all kinds of reasons from your point of view. And you jump to the conclusion that God is not fair. The Old Testament people had that view. And God says, in the Old Testament, you think I am not fair? Are you not the ones who are not fair? And then he gives all kinds of examples of their false worship, their idolatry, and so forth. They're the ones who are not fair. Why God does what he does, how do we answer that? Well, there's only one way. We don't look at the world and try and figure out how God thinks. You will never be able to figure that out. You instead look to the cross. For example, at the funeral of a Christian person, I can't imagine doing a sermon and never mentioning the cross. There are a lot of sermons out there that do not. What do they mention? He was such a good man. <laughs> no, he wasn't. And all Christians in the Lutheran church often confess we are poor, miserable sinners deserving nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. So they do not want a funeral service indicating, well, we know he's in heaven because he was so good. He just confessed he's not. He's in heaven because Jesus was so good that he died on the cross and paid the price of our sins with his death. And we know that God the Father accepted it because he also raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is really an indication that your sins have been forgiven. But a lot of people will not accept that. They don't accept it because they're against the forgiveness of sins. They don't accept it because they don't think they're that bad a person that they need the forgiveness of sins. 
And that's where you're going to have division. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and so forth. That Jesus goes through in verse 53 of Luke 12. Because for many people, they just cannot understand. And therefore, we pray that the word of God continues to come to them, particularly the gospel, because then the Holy Spirit will work through the word of God, creating faith. And therefore, what they once thought was ridiculous and nonsense, they now cling to for salvation because they now understand, regardless of the reason why God does what he does, when we look to the cross, we find our answer. And that's why the cross is definitely the site for the theologian of the cross. On tomorrow's Long Gospel, how many times have you asked God for help in a particular situation? The hymn we're going to be looking at reveals how God does help the Christian, even at times when the Christian is unaware of the help that has come. We'll take a look at that with Mark Smith. I'm Tom Baker. Thanks for listening. God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.